Father, as we read and consider this portion of your holy word, would you let your voice be heard by your people? From week to week, we hear many things from many worldly voices, and tonight we've come to hear from you. So renew a right spirit within us. Help us to take heed how we hear. Lord, come take the meager scraps of this poor minister and do a spirit work of multiplication that our hearts and minds may be fed richly from the bounty of your word. Come to us, we pray, for the sake of Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, our text tonight is verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Amen. So far the reading and hearing of God's holy word. May He add His blessing to it. So last week we began this new section in Romans where Paul begins to form for us a doctrine of sin. And so I've already warned you that we're going to be talking about sin a lot more than usual. I should add that. He, he's beginning to answer for us the question that sort of arises out of the end of verse 17. Uh, end of 17, if you glance back up, he declares there, the righteous shall live by faith. And the question that comes up is, why why do we need a righteousness by faith? And the answer that he's begun to give to us is because no one who's ever lived, apart from one, has any righteousness of their own. Not you, not me, not anybody you've ever known in this world has any righteousness that we can offer to God. And that's, that's his theme from here through the middle of chapter 3 this doctrine of sin and why we need a righteousness by faith. He started uh, there in verse 18, 19, and 20, telling us that God's wrath is revealed against all mankind because all have suppressed the truth of God. And even though He has clearly revealed Himself and it's been clearly perceived by all mankind, this truth of God has been pressed down, set aside by mankind. And so we are, as it says at the end of verse 20, without excuse. We'll probably come back to this several times as we work our way through these next couple of chapters. I want to remind you, you know, as we come to this text, hopefully most of us coming to it um, as those in Christ, trusting in Him by faith and, and believing the gospel and having been brought into the family of God and having been set free from this carnal nature that Paul is describing, you know, the question may come up into your mind from time to time in these chapters, why are we talking about this? You know, why can't we who already trust in Christ just skip ahead to Romans 3.21 where he starts talking about other things besides our sin problem? Well, remember, the gospel is good news, 
Right? That's the definition of the word. The gospel is good news that starts with bad news and ends with great news. And if you take the bad news out of the gospel, you don't have the gospel anymore. If we don't have a reason to be saved, we have no reason for Jesus. We have no reason for a Savior. We have no reason for the book of Romans. If we're just good on our own and can get by without any help, we don't need the gospel. But the truth is much worse than that even. We're actually dead in sin. We're unrighteous to our very core apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We need a righteousness that is alien to us. And Paul seeks to convince us of the bad news so that we might believe again um, and trust in the good news that Jesus has come to save us. And just because we have already believed this gospel doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded of the bad news that it started with. We need to remember because we need to repent and we need to seek to leave and kill our sin day by day just as God has called us to. The verses before us tonight continue Paul's thought process from from there at the end of 17 into 18. And specifically, Paul is explaining precisely what it means from the end of verse 18, what it means to suppress the truth. We see that sort of at the beginning of verse 21. He sums up 18 through 20. For although they knew God, they knew God. God has revealed Himself to man whom He has made. It is clearly perceived. And in sin and rebellion, mankind has chosen to suppress this true revelation of God's character in the things that have been made. John Calvin writes it like this. He, he begins, as he's writing on this chapter, to think about all the ways that God has revealed Himself. He says, God's eternity appears evident because He is the maker of all things. His power because he holds all things in his hand and continues their existence. His wisdom, because he arranged things in such an exquisite order. His goodness, for there's no other cause than himself why he created all things, and no other reason why he should be induced to preserve them. His justice, because in his government he punishes the guilty and defends the innocent. His mercy, because he bears with so much forbearance the perversity of men. And his truth, because he is unchangeable. And it's in our natural state that, that mankind has suppressed these truths. And what we mean by that is that we have refused to turn to God as He has revealed Himself to us. And so we're going to work through these three verses, phrase by phrase, and this is what we'll see. Two main things. We're going to see how mankind has suppressed the truth. And we're going to see the results of suppressing the truth. How we've suppressed the truth and the results of suppressing the truth. Look down and see verse 21 to start with. How mankind, how we have suppressed the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Two ways, if you catch them there, that this suppression of truth expresses itself in the life of man. First is a failure to honor God. They did not honor Him as God. Remember back up to verse 20. God's attributes, His invisible attributes, have been clearly perceived. No one can plead ignorance. You know, your child does something that you say they're not allowed to do and, and they're, they're being disobedient when they do it. And they might, depending on how old they are, say, well, I didn't know. 
right? You didn't tell me. Maybe there's a little leniency in certain circumstances for that excuse. But not for mankind before the holy God. There is no ignorant man, Paul says. It has been clearly perceived that there is a God and His invisible attributes are on display for all to see. God has revealed Himself to mankind. One author says, And so it yet remains man's obligation as God's image bearer, willingly to ascribe unto Him that glory which is due to His name. That's our first catechism question, right? In the shorter. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We are to honor God as God. But mankind has refused to glorify Him. We have refused to honor Him. We have refused to ascribe to Him that which is due to His matchless name. We have withheld from Him what He demands of us as our Creator. We have robbed Him of our affection and our praise and our devotion. All that which belongs to Him by virtue of having made us we have withheld from Him. They failed. We have failed to honor God. But secondly there, the other way that Paul explains this truth suppression is failure to give thanks to Him. I wonder if this one surprises you as it makes its way to this short list. Who among men is not indebted to the Lord for everything? Everything that we possess comes from God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. But sinful mankind sees the benevolence of God and refuses to give thanks to Him. I don't doubt that any Orthodox Christians on board with the first one of these truth suppressions not honoring God as God. But what about the second one? You know, we, we all happily agree, yes, it's horrible for man the creature to refuse to give ascriptions of glory and honor to God the Creator. But are we so quick to recognize the heinousness of a lack of gratitude toward our God? Some of you know that I'm dedicating some of my free time these days to studying our book of church order. Um because I'm just trying to ramp the nerdiness up as much as I can, just getting it as high as I can. Something was pointed out to me recently by a friend as we've been reading through the book together, that the idea of thanksgiving, thanksgiving plays a huge role in our life as God's church. We are actually talking about it in the context of holidays. He would make the argument, he said, that the most Presbyterian of holidays is not Christmas or Easter, neither of which are found in our book of church order, but thanksgiving which is found nearly 20 times in our book. Times of thanksgiving, services of thanksgiving, prayers of thanksgiving, all these different places where we're supposed to give thanks to God. And, and that, that prominent role of even just that word proves out what Paul is saying, that thanksgiving is so important to the life of God's people. And when it's not there, it's a sign that they are not God's people. The beginning of Psalm 100, the ascription by itself calls itself a psalm for giving thanks. And it's not the only one that's given for that singular purpose. 
get other texts in the New Testament like Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, Christian, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, comma, this means continuing, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So whatever we do, we do in the name of Jesus as we give thanks to God. That means our whole life is one of thanksgiving. Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A part of our life as God's creatures on the one hand, and certainly as His children on the other, is continual thanksgiving for all that He has done. Not just that He has made us and revealed Himself to us, which are things we should be overly thankful for, but also that He, in in our further revelation in the New Testament, He has saved us by His mercy and grace. Our lives ought to be lived as, as open exclamations of what God has done and how thankful we are for Him. And the lack of thankfulness, Paul says here, is evidence that you are suppressing the truth and not giving to God what belongs to Him by right and authority. You know, what's, what's our application here? Well, maybe we just say be more thankful. Honor God as we should. I'd encourage you as you think through these, um, these expressions of truth suppression as, as you wonder and, and, and plumb the depths of your heart by the help of the Spirit to see if there's any truth suppression going on in you. Seek after those first four commandments of the Decalogue. Go back to Exodus 20 and read through those and ask the Holy Spirit to apply them to your heart. You know, are you, are you worshiping and bowing down to God alone? Which means to the exclusion of all other things. Are you worshiping Him rightly in the way that He has prescribed and not bringing any superstition or other elements into your own private worship or your own corporate worship? Are you honoring His name and living as one who's been given the name of Christ on them as a child of God? Are you giving to Him the time that is due to Him? Not just this day, but are you orienting your whole life the other six days in such a way that you can rest and worship on Sundays? These are the ways that we can seek after God and trust that the Spirit will use to suppress any true suppression that may be still in our hearts, even as His people today. Trust the Lord to work, seek after Him in these ways. That These are the expressions of suppression that Paul articulates. But, but what he does next is he describes the results of this suppression. The suppression looks a certain way but it also affects the person doing it in certain ways. Look at, uh, go back to the beginning of 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became, track the three things with me, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul explains here what it looks like to suppress the truth. And now these are the results of that suppression. Three main results of suppressing the truth. First, there is a, 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 a vanity that comes upon our minds. A, a futile thinking. That, that is to say that our thinking, our perception, our consideration of things and the world and of God and, and of everything else that you can fit into the category our thinking and consideration becomes vain and empty, futile. John Murray says, 
that the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. What he means is that if, if, if God is removed from us as the object of our worship, something else will take its place. Or maybe we would say that if God was never put into that place to begin with, something else will take its place. That it's never empty, that throne of your heart. And this is the constant struggle of the Christian life, is it not? That there's so much worldliness vying for that place in our hearts and in our struggle and our fight is to, to, to seek to keep the Lord Jesus there as the object of our worship. But more pointedly, what Paul means here is that when people reject the truth, they inevitably come to embrace lies in its place. If, if, if God is the true and living God, and we reject Him, and something has to go into that spot in our hearts, it must be something that's a lie. It must be something that's an idol. It must be something that's vain and empty. For apart from God, everything is vain and empty. Do you remember in Acts 17, Paul was in Athens, and he had a moment to speak to the crowd, and he, he says to them in Acts 17.22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's not a good thing, by the way. He wasn't complimenting them. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, he's talking about the idols to which they would bow down, apparently many of them. He says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now Paul goes on to talk about that with them. They, they failed, these men in Athens, to give honor or thanks to the true and living God. And, and as they remove him who is clearly perceived in the world around us as, as they fail to give God what is due to Him. It's not that their lives just go on without religion, as if if you don't worship God, you don't have a religion of any kind. He calls them very religious people. And what does that begin to look like in their lives? Well, they have idols and, and images to all sorts of different things. Well, I know that we should worship something. Maybe we should worship this, or maybe we should worship this, or this, or this, or this, and all number of things to the extent that they even have an idol that's inscribed to an unknown God just in case they missed something. That's how religious they are. That's how religious we are. We will always seek to bow down to something. When, when, when right praise and ascriptions of glory are absent, Truth goes along with it. Our thinking becomes vain and empty. You know, have you ever heard of, of somebody that doesn't believe the Scriptures, somebody that doesn't follow after Christ? Have you ever heard them describe God to you before? It's just silliness. I like to think of God as a fluffy teddy bear in the sky that takes care of me. I mean, it's just nonsense. I like to think of God as Mother Nature, some mythical force out there maybe that, that's in all of us. You know, that's Star Wars theology. That's not right. It's nonsense. When, when understanding and worship of the true God departs, we drift off into vain and empty thinking and become stupid. That's the second thing he says. The second result, and all of these three really track together. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. When I was at Bellhaven 
for undergrad, Knox Chamberlain taught us and that in the Bible, the heart is, is a person's whole inner life. So intellectual and emotional and volitional. So, so what we think and understand and what we feel and what we choose to do, um, this is all of who we are. That their foolish hearts were darkened. When we begin to suppress the truth of God, Paul says here, our hearts, which are already foolish because of sin, become more darkened. And we really jump to the third result here because it, it, it gives a glimpse of this darkening of the, of the heart. 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. I want you to understand and see that the, the slow decline, and it's going to continue through the rest of this chapter when we come back to it another time. You need to see the decline that's happening, the, the downward movement of these verses. Truth suppression leads to empty thinking. A refusal to acknowledge God leads to empty thinking, which leads to darkening hearts, which leads here to fools claiming wisdom. What do we mean? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Have you ever heard of a man claiming that he's a woman? You know, Forty years ago, we would have gasped at such a thought. You can't go very many days without seeing something like that on the internet or in the news. Those of you in Christ will, by the gift of, of spiritual enlightenment, recognize that such a proposition is beyond foolishness. It's beyond nature. But what does the world say if you push back against such a truth, such a statement or proposition? If a man looks at you and says, I'm a woman, and you say, no, no, the world will come at you so hard and say, we are wise, you, you ancient Christians do not understand. Modernity has brought wisdom into our lives, and we know what is right. Look at it again, verse 22. Is it not the world we live in? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. By God's grace, this is not a description of a Christian there in verse 22. But we still must guard against that remnant of foolishness left in our hearts. I was trying to think about this and wondering where we might see it crop up. Where do we claim wisdom and yet show ourselves foolish? I wonder maybe if we think about our sanctification incorrectly sometimes and we suppose that we cannot change out of our sinful inclinations. We, we can't put off the old man the way the Bible tells us to. I just am too much to sin. It's just too hard. And that's a lie. That's a foolish thing to say. And sometimes we even may claim it's wisdom. You know, we think ourselves pious to say, well, I'm just broken and I always will be. No. There's only one unchangeable, immutable being in the universe, and it's not you. We can change by God's grace and mercy. Don't be foolish. Trust the Lord. So let's, let's summarize this, this sort of downward trend of these three results. Um, I thank the Lord that these words are not descriptions of those in Christ, but they are about those outside of Christ. But beloved, we must not be too hasty to dismiss the great warning that is implicitly here in these verses. Take heed to yourself lest you fall. 
let these verses remind you that we must maintain a constant, vigilant pursuit of the truth of God as revealed in, in creation and providence and also in the scriptures that he has given to us. Jeffrey Wilson, a commentator on this text, makes this point about the significance of, of believing that God is God and honoring Him as God. He says, man aspired to equal ultimacy with God. Right? We wanted to be on His level. This is Adam and Eve. And thus denied the most basic fact of His own existence, namely, that He was created. By refusing to know God as God, man lost the only means of identifying himself. The reason that our world runs around trying to figure out what their identity is, is because without a recognition of their creaturehood beneath a holy God, they don't know who they are. Wilson says there is no independent knowledge possible for man. Everything we know, we know from God. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that, that, that wrong theology leads to wrong worship. That is, that wrong thinking about God and, and a pushing off of Him and a, a leaving His honor and glory of being thankless leads to wrong worship. I would... If, if we don't recognize Him for who He is, if we don't think about Him rightly according to what He has revealed to us about Him, we will never come to Him rightly. This is why right theology is so important. This is why right understanding of the Scriptures is so important because without right understanding of who God is and as a result who we are before Him, there is no right worship. If we don't understand our sinfulness and our our, our wretchedness before a holy God will never, will never understand the need to come to a Savior through whom right worship is found, through whom rest and reconciliation and refreshment is found. And so, as an additional point to our original 2, verse 23, shows us that the ultimate end of this truth suppression is idolatry, which is what the next several paragraphs are going to get more into in detail. But for now, look at 23. And as a result of these things, right, moving down in all of these things, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about, about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And some of this will come into play. But you need to see this, that the ultimate end of this truth suppression is, is idolatry. We are a people that worship. It's in our very nature to worship something. Think back to Acts 17 and those, those men in Athens who sought to worship something, anything. So think, if, if we are obstinate to the truth of who God is, and as it says here, as a result of that obstinacy, we are... Uh, um, the truth is more and more obscured to us as a result, we will then seek to worship something else. The folly of idolatry is what this corruption all leads into. Paul explains this by describing the kind of idolatry that mankind turns to. Maybe there's something here about still seeking to worship the true God, but worshiping Him improperly. It could just be a total disregard of God altogether and worshiping these 
things that God has created. John Calvin writes it like this. He says, first, they befouled the majesty of God by forming him in the likeness of a corruptible man. That glory which is subject to no defects to the most wretched condition of man. And then, being not satisfied with so great a crime, they descended even to beasts and to those of the most filthy kind, by which their stupidity appeared still more evident. You can go think about the golden calf, right? They wanted to worship something of their own design. Psalm 106 speaks of that, saying they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Lincoln Duncan sums it up this way. If we don't want the God who is, we will invent the God we want. There is no irreligious person that has ever been born. If we do not want the God who is, we will invent the God we want. Truth suppression leads to corruption, which leads to idolatry. So as we close, you know, maybe this is in the back of your mind. I tried to talk about it a little bit at the beginning. What do we do with passages like this? What do we do with, with passages that speak so, so plainly about sin and about sin alone? I would encourage you to remember two things. First, fear the Lord. The matters with which Paul is dealing show us that God is not to be trifled with. Jesus is the one who told us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In your sin, on your own, you are those described in these verses. So fear the Lord and stand before Him with a right understanding of who He is. This necessarily means is the second thing I would encourage you to do is to find refuge in Christ from the wrath of God. And I know that many of you have, and I praise the Lord for it. Find refuge in Christ from the wrath of God. There is only one way to find safety from God's wrath, and it is in God's mercy. The very one who would condemn you for sin and be right in doing so extends the mercy of the gospel to you. It's Romans 6, which we'll get to in, you know, like 17 years. The wages of sin is death. Remember, it's not an inflated number. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Christ, there is protection because he suffered the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. Will you leave here tonight trusting him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, for the sake of your Son, send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. And we thank you that for all the sin that we have ever committed or ever will, if we rest in Christ, there is free redemption. So come and stir us up again to cling to Christ and to find our all in him. Teach us, Lord, what it is to honor you and thank you and bless your name for all that you have done and all that you are. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.